Amen, Chris. Thank you for leading us, brother. It's good to be back with you this morning to open up God's Word. We'll be in Romans chapter 5, and I invite you to come to Lord and let's ask for His divine assistance as we go to His Word. Lord, amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? Lord, we marvel at your gospel, at your good news. And Lord, as we now come to your word and as we expound upon this good news to greater depths, Lord, we need you. We need you to stir our hearts and our affections to the things of your word. Lord, there are many things eyeing our attention, drawing our hearts away, but Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit to open up our eyes, to enlighten our hearts, give us a spirit of knowledge and of wisdom of the revelation of Christ and the inheritance that is ours with all the saints. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. The night before Jesus went to the cross told his disciples that in the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus was certainly correct when he said that we would have trouble in this life. Very few of us would need convincing of that reality. But what, maybe on the surface, are we to make of his words, take heart, I've overcome the world. What kind of comfort is that? On the surface, it may seem like telling someone, you're about to lose your job, but take heart, I'm going to get a promotion. That would not be much of an encouragement. That's not at all what Jesus was trying to convey. This is not the hope that Jesus was offering to his disciples or the hope that he was offering to us who read his word. No, the hope that Jesus offers, and the point of that passage is that our hope is integrated in Jesus' life. That Jesus' victory ensures ours. This morning in Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11, I think Paul takes this theme that there will be trouble, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. And he goes into greater detail as to what I think Jesus was saying to his disciples in John 16. Here in this passage, we're going to see that true hope comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically what he has accomplished for us. And therefore, even though in this life we will have trouble, we can rejoice because we have hope. However, I think it's that truth, rejoice in our hope, that can often be difficult, especially when the trouble is at its highest. How do we rejoice in hope? Particularly when life, it seems, can sometimes seem hopeless. The struggle is exasperated for us in the culture that we live in, a culture which bombards us with false hopes in every direction that we turn. It's interesting that last year there was a study done on the effects of social media, 
And those who have heavy social media usage also have increased depression. Research concluded that exposure to highly idealized representations of peers on social media elicits feelings of envy and the distorted belief that others lead happier, more successful lives. Social media, it's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? It's, it's as if all of life gets condensed into 140 characters, and it just goes fast as you go through. Or if you're on Facebook, it's the endless scroll to nothing, and you just keep doing it. But when I look at that, it's really just a condensed pressure cooker of false hope. Not saying the things that we all post up there are, are necessarily worthless, but we don't give a full picture of our life on there. And that can even happen when we're at work, we, we see other people, or, or even the shoulders we rub against here at church. I can't tell you how, how many times I've spoken to an individual or, or family who was withdrawn from church, and, and just to find out, they said, well, we're just going through a lot of trouble, and it just doesn't seem like anybody else feels what we feel. They have a distorted view. Because if we were to sit down with each and every one of us, we could open up our hearts and we could say, in this life I have trouble. Thinking of the culture again, many of the commercials on TV or radio are, to, are just selling us over and over a distorted dream of happiness. Movies, music, TV show us uh, uh, or present to us an idealized life or family or, or adventure which often breeds discontentment and a distorted belief that most people out there are having a better time than me. I must be missing something. I wonder how much money and time that we give trying to attain that which will never truly satisfy. It's my prayer this morning that as we explore verses 1 through 11, that we will leave here with not a superficial joy, not a superficial hope, but we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to understand the hope that we have will not disappoint. It's a hope that's not based on a distorted view of reality, but it's a hope that's based upon the God who raises the dead. And who is the Lord over every rule and authority and power and dominion in this age and in the age to come. And so this morning I asked our Lord to open up our eyes to see the object of our hope. Let, let us see what our hope truly is. The grounds of our hope. And that we may leave with an assurance of hope. So this morning, in verses 1 through 11, we're going to see the object of our hope, the grounds of our hope, and the assurance of our hope. Paul begins to put into focus our hope as he starts in verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Here in verse 1, Paul is transitioning his exposition of the gospel, and he summarizes pretty much all of chapters 1 through 4 in this statement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That is the great truth of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ, that through faith in the Lord Jesus, we have our sins forgiven. We were singing that, that new song that, that Pastor Chris led us in, the Lamb of God. Our sins have been erased. Paul is expounding upon this truth, and he says, therefore, since this has occurred, we have these benefits, you may say. He says justification is a present reality for us. And we who have turned to Christ and trust in the work of the cross, we have three things. We have peace with God, he says. We have access into grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. Let's look at these phrases just a little bit. Uh, peace with God. It's one of those phrases I think we often overlook or, or just we, we, we read it and, and just move along. And, and maybe we forget just the implications of what we were before that statement was true of us. Because we have been forgiven of our sins, get this, we're no longer at odds with the God of the universe. And this presupposes something that we're going to find out later. We were hostile toward God. We were enemies of God. And this wasn't just our attitude toward God. It was God's attitude toward us. We were dead in our sins. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But since we have been justified, we are now at peace with God. We've entered into a friendly relationship. Later, as Paul's going to say, we've been reconciled. That is, that is bringing two hostile parties together in friendly relationship. But not only that, because we're at peace with God, we have access by faith into His grace. When I, when I read that phrase, I think of, uh, of entering the church door in the back. Um, and now we have these little neat fobs, and I have access whenever I need it. I, I just put it up there, and it goes... And I can open the door and enter in. If you don't have one of these, what? You don't have access. But Paul is saying through Christ, we have access to the grace, the abundant riches of the grace of the God of the universe. We don't have to have a key fob. No, we enter by faith, he says. Through faith, we have access to, to stand, and this idea is like a realm of grace. And again, this is understood in contrast to what we once were. We were once under law, and being under law, we stood condemned. And the law brought forth or, or exaggerated our sin, and it brought forth death. But grace, on the other hand, the, the, the realm by which we now stand, well, it is life-giving. And it results in righteousness. I think of uh, in 1 John chapter 1, John writes to the church and he's, he says, Beloved, I write to you that, that none of you may sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. This is the realm in which we now stand. 
The gospel does not say, okay, you've been forgiven of, of your sins in the past, but now you're on your own. Try to work it out. No, we are under this banner of grace, this realm of grace, which, is, which rules in life and will bring forth life. And, and so this brings rejoicing and really looks forward to the hope of the glory of God that is ours. We rejoice because of the hope that one day the glory of God is going to be revealed on this earth. And that's going to be a good thing for us because we are at peace with Him. And we stand in grace. If we are not in Christ, if we have not been justified, if we are under the law, if we are remaining hostile to God, that day in which the glory of God is revealed will be an awful day for us. But for us, it's the day of hope. It is what we long for. We are hoping for the glory of God. Now, when we read that phrase, I think most of us are like, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we do it all for the glory of God. You know, I'm living for the glory of God. I'm hoping for the glory of God. But if I were to ask you, what does that mean? Could we give an answer? I mean, could you really say, oh, I get excited about the glory of God. I, I rejoice. Every day I wake up, I say, I am hoping for the glory of God. Do we say that? Do we respond like that? I'd venture to say that most of us don't. And I would say that that is probably because we don't really understand the riches and the depths of the glory of God that is for our good and the hope in which we have. Paul often speaks of this hope. Throughout all his letters, he speaks to the churches that he writes uh, about the hope that we have in the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly when our Lord will return. We are a people awaiting a king to come back. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. So that's a component of it. When, when Christ comes back, glory is not only going to be his, but he is going to share that glory with us. If you flip over just a couple of pages to chapter 8, Paul calls it the revealing of the sons of God. He says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, there's some type of glory that's coming. And he begins to explain, verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for, what? The revealing of the sons of God. Well, who's that? That's you and me. Who we are justified, righteous, at peace with God, standing in the realm of grace, is going to one day be revealed to the world. And Paul says that this revealing is so significant that even the creation eagerly waits for this day. The creation does. The trees, the sky, the earth, your pet, may be more excited about the glory of God than we are. Because there's something about when this glory comes and what will happen to us that liberates this world. When he calls us the sons of God, this is royal language, this is kingdom language. 
Son of God is a title that spoke of David, the king. He was the son of God. And Jesus is this son of God who has come. And when we are in Christ, we are all sons of God. And we're going to be found rulers in Christ's kingdom. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So this glory that we are anticipating is a kingdom. It's a kingdom which is going to transform this world and is a kingdom in which we are going to share and rule. Glory also concerns our resurrection. It concerns our redemption. Later, Paul will talk about our adoption as sons of God. And so therefore, our, our present mortal bodies, which what? They are falling apart. The older we get, the more we realize it. And what does the world say? Hey, take more of this so that you can be in denial of this reality, right? You listen to ESPN 680. There, there's a company, every other ad, 25 again. You know who they're targeting? They're targeting my generation, 35 and up. You can be 25 again. It's not going to work. Maybe for a while, but that hope will disappoint. The hope that we're longing for is when our present mortal body will die and be sown, as it were, in dishonor, but be raised in glory. For when Christ appears, he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. That's what we hope in. The glory of God is the resurrection. I'm hoping for the day in which this frail body dies and is planted in the ground like a seed and it sprouts out at the resurrection. Not only will our bodies be raised in glory, but so will the present earth, as I've already alluded to. Paul speaks of the creation eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because the creation itself is going to be set free from the bondage of sin that which it is subjected to. I mean, you just turn on the news. California is literally burning. Hurricanes are coming in in rapid succession. And we'll just move into the next season, the next season, where disaster after disaster will come. This is not how it will be. And I venture to say, if we, and the day will come, that disaster will strike here, we'll be turning to this passage. And we'll be saying, Lord, we are praying and we are hoping in the revealing of the sons of God so that we don't have to worry about tornado or flooding or what may ever come. So what does it mean then to rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God? It means to boast in our king because he's overcome the world. That's why that is good news. By his death and resurrection, he has put into place a, a new creation that is beginning with each and every person whose hearts are being changed by the Spirit of God. This means that we pursue even more to understand and behold the glory of Christ now through his word. What we're going to see here in verses 1 through 11 is actually just an introduction to verse chapters 5 through 8. And Paul is going to take everything that we're seeing here, and he's going to expand upon them in great depths. And so in chapters 1 through 4, he expanded upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And now he's going to move on, therefore having been justified, 
What's our hope? Chapters 5 through 8 is all about hope. And the fact that because Christ has died and risen and sits at the right hand of the Father and he is ruling over every authority and dominion and, and power in this age and the age to come, that we are more than conquerors, he's going to conclude. This means that we're banking on the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus says, we are storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where a thief cannot break in and steal. It means living as those who have peace with God and have life in his name. And so for this reason, we can hope in this glory because hope has been grounded in God's love for us. We see here, that's Paul's point in verses 3 through 8. And he speaks of two grounds here, two bases, two foundations for our hope. And the first is the love of God through the Spirit, and the second is the love of God through Christ. I want you to see at the end of verse 5. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Everything in verses 3 through the first part of 5 is because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Scripture has revealed that, that our God is one, but yet is in three persons. And so in this way, if you're thinking about what, what Orthodox Christians have, have, have articulated for, for centuries, is that God is a Trinity. And that means that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But that doesn't mean we have three gods. We have one God who is in three persons. And so, in this way, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Holy Spirit is God. He's one person of the one triune God. And this God who created all things has loved us. As the psalmist writes, he has been mindful of us. I mean, you think about important people in the world. Have you ever been maybe in a work setting and you're trying to get noticed by the owner or, or, or someone higher up in management? And it's as if, oh, they don't have time for us little people. Or you, you maybe joke with a friend who's, who's rising up and you say, hey, well, well, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget us. Don't forget the little people. Well, the scriptures say that the God who created the universe, who holds the world in his hand, who upholds the world, world by the word of his power, is mindful of you. He not only is mindful of you, but he knows the hairs on your head. And Paul wants us to see that this God has demonstrated his love for us in a tangible way by taking residence in our heart. He has been poured, he has poured his love into our hearts. This is probably uh, uh, reflecting on the new covenant reality that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on the sons and daughters of men. And what we see happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But this reality occurs for all who trust in faith in Christ when they believe that the Spirit is in conjunction working and regenerating that heart and giving them a new life. We, we call this being born again. 
And so the Spirit of God dwells in us, giving us new hearts, which now enables us to please God. The Spirit also leads us in all truth. He, he enables us to confess Jesus is Lord. And elsewhere, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our down payment, our seal of our future inheritance to be revealed. So how does that tangibly help us have hope in the midst of trouble? Maybe to ask it a different way. How do I know I have the Spirit of God? Because throughout the scripture, the essential element of every person who is a true Christian is one who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. If you do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you are not a believer. You are not saved. And so the question is, how do, how do you know? And Paul is seemingly saying, hey, we have hope in the glory of God. And this hope is sure because God has poured out his love in us by giving us the Spirit. Okay, Paul, so how do I know that I have the, the Spirit. The way we know is that we experience the Spirit as the Lord grows us through suffering. This is what he's going to get at. I've kind of jumped the gun and gotten us to the end of the verse, but, but look in verse 3. Actually, back up to verse 2 where he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we we rejoice, we boast, we have our glory in the hope of glory. But verse 3 says, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Huh? How, do, how does that mesh? How does, how does that work? And not only do we rejoice in, in sufferings, but we rejoice in the work that it does. Why on earth would we do such a thing? Why would we rejoice in our trouble? Well, the point is not that we rejoice in the suffering itself. But notice why we rejoice. Because we know something. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that. That's the joy part. We know what our suffering is doing. And if we are a Christian and the Spirit of God is alive and well in us, and if you have, have trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you have the full Spirit, it's not like you, you, you kind of wane on the, and you got to go to the pump and fill up and get some more Holy Spirit in you. That's not how it works. You've been, you've been baptized into Christ. You have the Spirit of God in you. And so if you have the Spirit of God in you, this is what how the Spirit of God works in your life to produce hope. Number one, suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. You see that here. Not only do we rejoice in our sufferings, or not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Produces endurance. It's, it's like a runner, right? If you run or you're, you, you've played sports of any kind, you push your body past its breaking point. You're always pushing further and further. I have a really gross story about that, but I'll spare you. Um, but the point is, you push your body through suffering, and the next time 
you can do that. You break through that wall. And so in a similar way, our sufferings in this life toughen us up. They toughen up our souls so that we're able to withstand the challenges that life brings. And here's what the Spirit of God does in us. The Spirit of God preserves and keeps us through these trials so that we grow stronger in faith. And that's why he says, and so endurance produces character. That term character means, uh, refers to something being tested and to be found genuine, to be proven. James speaks of this in James chapter 1 and says, Consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because they express the genuineness of your faith. And so in other words, after one endures many difficulties, you build up an endurance in what it looks like to have faith. This is exactly what we saw with Abraham, is it not, just a few weeks ago? Where it took how many years? 26 years, I think, of a promise that you're going to have a child. And the promise came when all hope was basically lost. But the text said he did not weaken in faith, but he grew strong, giving glory to God. And so the Lord uses our sufferings to cause us to trust Him. To cause us to not rely on ourselves, To produce in us a character, a proven character. And that character then produces hope. As our faith is exercised, so is our hope increased. I want you to hear this, this statement from one theologian who, who talked about how, how do sufferings produce hope. It says this, suffering, rather than threatening or weakening hope, as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. Hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope. And the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparent hopelessness or hopeless circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty for that of which we hope. You understand what he's saying there? Endurance through suffering increases your faith and you begin to exercise hope like a muscle. And if you're never exercising hope, well, then you won't have strong faith and you won't have hope. And this is where I'm pleading with us this morning. Stop putting your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Stop putting your hope in the uncertainty of worthless endeavors. Because you're not working out the muscle of your hope. This affects how we pray. When someone is, is sick or ill, that doesn't mean that we say, well, good luck, enjoy that. That's not what we do. But we can now pray this text. I'm praying that the Spirit of God works endurance in you. That the Spirit of God then tests your character and brings out greater faith, that you grow in your faith through this trial. But most of us, the only thing that we would even think to pray for is, Lord, please take this trial away from me as soon as possible. And yet what we don't realize is that might be the very gift of God given to us. 
Endurance through suffering increases faith, which then in turn pries our fingers from holding fast to the worthless things of this world. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we hold on tightly, don't we? We, we, we live often as if we're taking all this stuff with us. As if, no, we don't have the hope of glory. I think of, of Peter when he says, always be ready to give an answer for those who ask, what? About the hope that is in you. If we're getting moved and, and, and motivated and inspired by the same things that motivate the world, which are disappointments, then they're never going to ask, well, why is your hope different than mine? If we're putting our hope in a political party or a figure or think that somehow it's going to work out perfectly this time, we're going to be disappointed after disappointed after disappointed. It can lead to a miserable life. But when we understand the hope of glory, well, then we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the Spirit of God is working in us, and this is where Romans 8, 28 comes in. He's working all things for our good. Now, that doesn't mean that means, oh, that suffering's going to end. It could. But what's the ultimate good? Our glory. The revealing of the sons of God, the resurrection of the dead, the new creation to come. We are settling for oh so much worthless stuff. And you know what that happens? That means we conflict arises. Book of Ephesians begins with Paul praying, I hope that your eyes of your heart are open to understanding the inheritance which is in the saints. And he spends the first three chapters dealing with the hope of our calling. And then he says, now walk, chapter 4, in a manner worthy of that calling. And what does that look like? It looks like unity amongst the brothers, peace with one another, love towards one another. It looks like bearing with one another because we're not trying to be in competition with one another. We're all journeying and placing and banking our hope in the glory to come. So we see how the Holy Spirit has preserved us. And grown us in our faith even through the times that we thought were hopeless. Have you been there before? Have you been in a situation where you thought, there's no way I'm going to last? Whether that's, I'm going to die, I'm going to give in to this temptation, or we're never going to make it through this trouble. And here you are today, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Spirit of God in you that is working in you day after day, working the gospel in your heart. Because here's what I want us to understand, because I think, and I'm talking to myself here, we believe the gospel with our lips, and we think of it as a content of something to believe, and it is. But the gospel, God, is moving not just to our head, but to our heart, and we actually begin having the gospel formed and shaped in us. And what's the gospel? Christ's death, burial, resurrection. Humility, exaltation. And brothers and sisters, our sufferings, whatever they are, the troubles are endless, aren't they not? They are opportunities of the Spirit of God working the gospel over and over and over again in your life as you die daily and you're exalted by the end because you, the Spirit of God preserved you. 
That's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's talking about despairing of life itself. Maybe you've been there. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Same word as he's speaking of here in Romans. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's why we need the church, by the way. It's a means of grace by which the Holy Spirit is working in us corporately. Notice what he says if you're following along. For as we share, verse 5, in the abundance abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we shall share abundantly in comfort too. And if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And why do these things occur? Verse 9. Indeed, we felt as if we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Do you see what he's trying to say here? Every trial that you go through and the Lord delivers you or preserves you is a reminder that he's preserving you for the long haul and the hope of glory to come. So that means that even when death is knocking at its door, we can say, death, where's your sting? Because I know one who's gone through it and I will come out on the other side as well. So Paul concludes Romans 8 saying this, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the love of God that's been poured into our hearts that preserves us and keeps us. And through the whole time, we are always coming back to the Lord and saying, you are the Lord and I'm hoping in the glory to come. Only believers do that. Now what happens when suffering comes and those fall away? Well, it shows the, they tested the genuineness of their faith. You see how that works? Again in 1 John 2.19, those who are no longer with us, that is only to show that they were never of us. The Spirit of God preserves those whom He's saving. So how do you know that God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit? Because you still believe after all this, whatever this is. You're still here. I love saying that to people and I'm counseling them. We especially over a long period of time, and we've gone through several trials, and, you say, and, and they say, I can't make it through this one. I said, that's what you said last time. And you're still here. And you still love Jesus. That's not you keeping yourself. That's the Spirit of God poured in your heart keeping you. And that now produces hope that you're going to make it through this, as Paul will say, momentary and light affliction. 
but ultimately he's going to carry you to the end. And that's how we encourage one another, by the way. We don't kick each other when we're down. Say, get up, suck it up. I've been there. You can do it. It's not what we do. We, we go back to these texts and we begin encouraging one another with these words. All right, I've blown up all my time with this. So we're going to move into the other ground and maybe close here. Hope is produced through the love of God by giving the Holy Spirit, but also the love of God through Jesus Christ. If you're back in Romans 5, we see this. Four. That means he's further explaining why we have hope. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die, verse 7, for a righteous person. Although perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's he doing here? It's kind of an interesting statement. At least verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. There's a lot of ink spilt trying to figure out, well, who's the righteous person, who's the good person, or are they the same thing? The details are difficult to get, but I think the bigger picture we understand. There are scenarios, though rare, that one would die for another. Maybe a, 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 a family member or a close friend. We think of the most powerful movie scenes when, when you see someone surprisingly taking one for the team and, and going to pull the trigger to blow up the enemy and, and letting everybody else get away or something like that. Or the, the, uh, the soldier we've heard in, in the stories of, of one who, who, who jumped and sacrificed his body by landing on the grenade so the rest of his brothers would be safe. We, we, those stories aren't common, but we've heard them before. But you know the story that no one's heard? The man who died for his enemy. None of us would do that, right? The man who killed our son. I want to die for that person. That story's never told, right? That movie's never written. And what Paul is saying, okay, yes, you have the Holy Spirit, the ongoing affirmation of God's love in your life, but let me tell you of the ground that started it all. It is when God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is not a human love, it's a divine love, it's a self-sacrificing love. And it's a love that then turns our world upside down because then we start loving like that. We were just in the evangelism and missions class. And one of the things we were talking about, what, what motivates the missionary to say, I'm going to go and take the gospel to, to a Muslim people or to another people group who will possibly kill me and maybe torture my family. What would motivate me to do that? Well, the gospel does. Because my whole life is turned around. And Paul says, if you doubt the love of God, look to the cross. And his point moves on, and he really argues from the lesser to the greater in verses 9 through 11. And this is where we see our assurance of hope then. He says, therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's arguing, he's saying, the harder thing occurred, our justification through Jesus' death on the cross. 
he died for his enemies. He says, well, how much more now, having been justified, is he not going to save us and carry us to the end through his life? He says it again in verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If Christ died for you, don't you think he's going to live for you? That's what the cross says. Christ died for you when you were his enemy, not when you were his friend. And now that we're your, his friends, do you not think he's going to finish the deal? That's, that's kind of the argument here. And I think so often we, we, we look so inwardly at ourselves and we, we lose sight of the love of God for us. And he's saying, I've already demonstrated my love for you. And I ongoingly demonstrate my love for you in giving you my Holy Spirit. And on the basis of these realities, therefore, we have hope. And so our entire life, brothers and sisters, and this is where we're ending, our entire life is shaped by the good news. It's not just something you think. It's not just something you say. God is now working it into your life. And that means the pattern of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection now becomes the pattern of our life. And it reminds us of the love of the gospel over and over and over again. And in doing so, he reminds us of his great love for us, which then, crazy as it sounds, produces hope that will not put us to shame. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, these are difficult truths, especially if we are undergoing trial, trouble in our life. But Lord, I pray for us, I pray for this church and whatever trouble will come our way, Lord, that you will preserve us. And Lord, that you would test the genuineness of our faith and it would come out to be found good, worthy, approved. And Lord, that as our faith is tested, it is worked out. Lord, that you would give us greater and greater amounts of hope. And that this world around us, that Jeffersonville and in southern Indiana and greater Louisville and those who view us would say, why do you have the hope you have? And that we can introduce them to you, the God of glory, who is going to make all things new and all things right. And that is our prayer to you. We pray that you would work these things in our hearts this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and let's sing as we hope in glory.